This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, I speak with Dr. Shri Kumar Rao. Dr. Rao received his PhD in marketing from Columbia University and teaches the immensely popular and pioneering course, Creativity and Personal Mastery, at the London School of Business and the Haas School of Business at the University of California at Berkeley. In addition, he's the author of a new book, Happiness at Work, as well as the Sounds True audio learning series, The Personal Mastery Program, Discovering Passion and Purpose in Your Life and Work. I spoke with Sri Kumar about this topic of passion and purpose, particularly in the workplace, and what makes for lasting fulfillment in life. Sri Kumar, your new book is called Happiness at Work. And this book is coming out at a time where I think more and more people are expressing that they're unhappy at work, especially post-economic downturn. Many people's salaries have been cut or frozen in some way. How can you help us be happy at work in this challenging time in which we're living? Excellent question, Tammy, and thank you for raising it. I run into this all the time. There are a couple of things that I would like to point out. Every time we're in a work situation and we say we're unhappy, what we're really doing is we're living in a me-centered universe where we're focusing all our attention on, this is how I want the universe to be, and darn it, it's not living up to my expectations. It's a good time for us to reflect on what is it that I'm contributing versus what is it that I expect and why darn it, am I not getting what I expect? If we spend less of the time focusing on what it is that we do not like and why is it happening to us, and look around for what is actually pretty good in our life and put our emotional energy in that, we will be, if not happy, at least a whole lot better. Is it not a me-centered universe? I, I thought it was a me-centered universe, Sri Kumar. It seems like that's the way everybody lives, right? It's about me maximizing my happiness, right? That is the way everybody lives. And fortunately or unfortunately, Tammy, if you spend the majority of your time living in a me-centered universe, and in a me-centered universe you interpret everything that happens to you in terms of what's the impact on me, then you are going to live a not very happy, sometimes miserable life. That's just the way it is. If you truly want to live a fulfilled life, the only way is to be part of a cause which is considerably bigger than yourself and something which brings a greater good to a greater community. So what you're saying is that I would be happy at work if I wasn't focused on how this is all affecting me? Is that what you're saying? Uh, essentially, yes. I do recognize that that's a lot easier said than done. And most of us would probably never get there. That's the bad news. 
the good news is that even a slight shift we make in that direction will make a huge impact on our well-being. Well, this might make sense for people who work for nonprofits that are doing great work in the world, or of course, if somebody's listening who happens to be employed here, it sounds true, they can find a, a sense of greater meaning and fulfillment. It's not just about them and their happiness, it's about the cause that they're working for. But most people, I think, work for businesses where they may feel neutral about the work that that business is doing. How can they find fulfillment in that? Well, let me tell you something that came up in one of my one of the talks I gave. One of the persons raised uh, raised his hand and said, "Professor Rao, that's all very nice," and raised exactly the point you did. It's okay if you're working for a nonprofit that's doing good things, but I work for a company that has just been indicted by the attorney generals of six states. And then he sat down. The point is, in any place that you are. In any organization that you are, you have a chance to make a difference. You are in touch with people. You're in touch with your colleagues. You're in touch with bosses. You're in touch with customers, with uh, vendors. Do you have the ability to raise their consciousness, to help them live up to their potential? And if you look at every single interaction that you have from the point of view of here is an opportunity for me, to be of service and get somebody to a higher level of consciousness, make them more comfortable in their own skin and feel better about who they are, then paradoxically you feel a whole lot better about who you are. Uh, I was talking to the senior executives of a major uh, pharmaceutical healthcare firm and uh, every single person in that room ran a country and some ran multiple countries and this was a company where profits were down and all kinds of reorganization was happening and there was a great deal of tension in the air. Many of the people present in the room knew that some of them would not be there in that meeting a year from that date. And in my talk I pointed out that if you define your job in functional terms, like I create marketing programs or I prepare pro forma balance sheets and income statements and reconcile them. If that's how you define your job, you're either burnt out or heading towards that. But I pointed out to them that, look, here's a middle-aged man and he had a heart attack and it's your stent that gives him a chance to live a proper life. Here's this beautiful woman who was in a car accident and went through the windshield and her face is all cut up and it's your sutures that give her a chance to have her looks back. Go meet that middle-aged man. Go talk to the woman who went through the windshield. That is why you get up in the morning. And if that's not why you get up in the morning, then you're not going to be very happy where you are in any position in the organization. So yes, a lot of organizations uh, are ho-hum, but ultimately somewhere in that economic system, they're doing something which is genuinely of benefit to people. Seek that out. And then, and this is the, the real kicker, if you feel that it's not doing enough, it is incumbent on you from whatever position you're in to try and engineer a shift so that it is doing more of benefit. And in your attempt to do that, regardless of you know, how little impact you think you're going to have, if you make the sincere attempt, it will repay you in space in terms of how you feel. Mm-hmm. So you believe that every business 
is either already currently contributing in some positive way to our world, if we could discover that, or it could contribute in some positive way. Yes, it could contribute in some positive way. And if you feel it's doing so much and should be doing a lot more, hey, you've just defined your purpose. Mm-hmm. Help make that happen. Find out other people who feel the same way. You know, there's always uh, much more power in uh, uh, numbers. So start building a coalition, start pushing it that direction. All of a sudden, you become a part of a cause which is greater than yourself, and you will find the difference in terms of how you feel. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned that regardless of what your position is in an organization, you can help, quote-unquote, raise the consciousness of another person in their interaction with you. Sure. H- how can people do that? What are some of your ideas about that, what that might look like? Okay. Uh, let me give you a something that happens in many companies. You have people who cluster around the coffee pot, and they talk about how terrible things are, how the economy is going down, how the boss is a, a complete tyrant and uh, nobody pays attention to them. And it's very possible for you to listen to all of that and get sucked into a downward spiral yourself. Or, as happened to someone who took my program, he listened to all of that and said, hey guys, you're absolutely right. And things are terrible and our bosses are you know, sent from the nether regions to make our life miserable. But let's just think, is there anything that we can collectively do to make this a better place? So understand what just happened by asking that simple question, and he didn't do it in an accusatory fashion. He didn't say, you guys are terrible for speaking in that way. He just said, is there anything that we can do to make it better? And that engineered a 180-degree transformation in the way the conversation was going. And they actually came up with, well, why don't we try this and see what happens? And they, that felt so good that they started uh, meeting weekly to come up each time with one single action we can take that will make our life better. And it just spread from there. That's something that can be done in virtually any organization. That's a wonderful example. The program that you've created with Sounds True, Sri Kumar, is called Personal Mastery, Discovering Passion and Purpose in Your Life and Work. Correct. And you, you state in your new book, Happiness at Work, and you state a version of this in the audio series on Personal Mastery, Discovering Passion and Purpose. Here's the statement you make. My vision is that you are so energized by what you do that you find yourself quivering with anticipation at the thought of going to work, that Monday morning is something you look forward to with eagerness, that you derive deep meaning and sustenance from your labor, and that this increases with each passing day. Now, when I hear that statement, and, and I'm somebody who actually loves my work, I think, well, that is, that is really quite a hyperbole. That's quite an exaggerated vision. Is, is that really realistic, quivering with excitement on Monday morning? <laughs> it, it, it is a vision, Tammy, and it's a little bit like, let's say you took up golf, and uh, the ideal thing would be to hit a hole-in-one. So you hit a hole-in-one 18 times in a row, and that's the ideal. Now, realistically, how many people are going to get there? But the point is, even though you know that a hole-in-one is the ideal, if you shoot a 80, you're pretty happy about it. So that is the vision which gives you direction, and you keep heading in that way. And as you start heading in that way, you will find that even if you don't get there, 
you make enough progress that it has a huge, I mean a huge impact on how you feel about what you do and how you feel each day. And that's what I want persons to recognize for themselves. I would say that a very large percentage of uh, persons who take my program, and I say very large, certainly well in excess of 80%, feel a whole lot better about what they do than they did before. Do they actually get there? I don't know if it's possible to get there. There will always be, we're stuck in the human predicament. There will always be things that frustrate us. There are times when we lose our temper, blow steam, you know, feel, why the hell did I get into all of this? But the amount of time you spend in such uh, uh, reveries is much less. And overall, you snap out of it very fast. And as you go through, if you continue having that as your vision, you spend less and less time being down, more and more time being up. And it's certainly true that there have a lot of persons who have taken my program who, if they're not quivering with excitement, are certainly not phased by it being Monday morning. Uh-huh. Yeah, I do think quivering with excitement, as I said, sounds, sounds extreme to me, but being joyful that it's Monday morning, possible. Absolutely. Not only possible, but you know, that, that's the way it should be. It's a pretty miserable life if uh, you get up and say, oh my God, it's Monday morning. I know, I spent decades in that situation. And the transformation for you happened? Uh, it happened when I started creating this course, when all of a sudden it became very important for me to help others, uh, you know, not feel dread on Monday morning. And all of a sudden, instead of this being a course that I taught, became a life work. And I'm so passionately interested in it that I can honestly say, for me, the difference between work and not work has really vanished. Yeah. Now, what about the person, Sri Kumar, who is an artist, a creative type of some kind, a dancer, and they think, you know, there's just no way that I can support myself through the thing that I'm really the most passionate about. So I have to have a day job. My Monday morning, I wake up and go to a job. And it's okay, but that's not really my passion. That's not what makes me quiver with excitement. I do it to support myself so I can do the thing that really turns me on. And that's just fine, Tammy, because all of us are complex individuals. There are many different needs and wants we have. We can be good at many different things. And if some things turn us on more, then uh, we arrange our lives so that we can do whatever it is that turns us on more. And that's, that's just fine. So if you are in such a situation and uh, you are, want to be a ballet dancer by evening and you're working as an accountant by day, be grateful to your day job because that is what permits you to have your evening job. And I don't think that it's accurate to say that you can only be creative in, quote, a creative job like writing, dancing, or in the arts or whatever. I think you can be creative anywhere. And frankly, I do believe that you can be more creative in business than in a lot of the other so-called creative endeavors. Mm-hmm. What, what you do you mean by that? You just have to define creativity differently. Yeah, what, what do you mean by that, creative in business? Okay, for example, uh, let's see if I can give you an actual example. We had someone who really wanted to be a writer. And he said, here I am, and I'm stuck in this boring office job and uh, in a company which uh, you know, makes a product that I'm not particularly interested in, and I want to go out and be a writer. And it so happened that he found himself in a marketing position and looked at the sales literature that was going out and said, this is very terrible. Nobody's actually going to pay attention to that. 
and he started writing copy and the response rate increased and he said hey this is something i'm good at and then he started being more creative in his copy he started being honest he you know reflected on his feelings he talked to customers and said this is how an actual customer feels. and he more than double response rates and all of a sudden he found his niche he wanted to be a copywriter and he became a very good copywriter and that uh, took him to a different level of uh, responsibility and uh, uh, pay and uh, also gave him the impetus to write his novel on the side that's just one example but no matter what position you're in if you look at it not as this is stifling me and i can't be creative here but if you look upon it as a this is the terrain and what is it that i can do to bring my natural creativity into bear in this situation you'll find that there's a lot around it mhm now, now you mentioned that the person who has a a day job that supports them so perhaps they can do some other activity that they really enjoy or they have a day job to support their family and they they love their family and that's really the place where they have the most sense of passion and purpose that they can be grateful for their day job versus resenting it versus exactly. Now now how do how do I do that? How am I grateful for this job that maybe previously I felt restricted by or resentful towards? Uh, here's something that uh, I get all participants in my program to recognize, Tammy. Every time you complain about your job, your work, or anything like that, two things are always true. Number one, you're being completely me-centered. Oh, me, poor me, I'm so bright and talented, and this is what I really want to do, and instead I'm stuck in this horrible position, dealing with turkeys all day, oh, poor me. That's number one, you're living in a me-centered universe. The second thing that's true is that you are invariably focusing on the two, three, or four things that are wrong with your job, or more precisely on the two, three, or four things that you think are wrong with your job, and ignoring the many more things that are actually pretty darn good about it. In the particular example that you raised, one of the things that is really good about the job is the person has a job, is getting an income, which even if inadequate, is permitting him or her to look after family, go to movies, put groceries on the table, stuff like that. When you explicitly acknowledge that, then all of a sudden you have a a shift in consciousness. Plus let's think further. If it was really so terrible, why are you there at all? Somewhere in the back of your mind you've committed a cost benefit analysis and said for these reasons it's not a bad idea for me to remain in the job. So acknowledge it consciously. Be grateful for the fact that it's giving you something. At least it's giving you enough that you won't walk out tomorrow. And once you start doing that, once you start actively looking for what is it in my job that's actually pretty good, it's amazing how much you will discover. You know, you'll find out that you know there are a couple of people in the company who you really like and you enjoy spending time with them. There are some customers who are a delight to interact with. things like that there are occasions when you come alive and you really enjoy what you're doing once you start thinking about things like that and then i have a specific exercise where not only do they identify such things but they also have a campaign to increase that component in their jobs and if you look at it from that perspective you don't look at it from the perspective of here's what i want and i'm not getting it 
but here's what I really enjoy in that, and what can I do to increase that component in my work, you'll find that your job transforms itself, and you transform yourself. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you're saying, let's say I really like a certain person or something. I can increase it by taking a walk with them during my break or something like that? Absolutely. Or if you say, Here, here's a customer, and I really like the customer, the relationship is good, you could have, how do I get more customers like that? Or how do I transform all my relationships with customers to be like that? What is it that I can do, which is somewhat within my control, to ensure that more of my experiences are like that? Now, this very first thing you said, the very first tip, this reframing, moving from a me-centered universe to a broader, a bigger view, I think that's so profound, Sri Kumar, and what I notice when you say it is, how much I'm me-centered about what I want. It's going to make me happy and how I want the company to perform in this way and then I'll be happy. And I'm wondering if you can give our listeners some tips on when we notice that we're in a me-centered place, which I think probably happens to most of us a lot. I mean, if I'm not looking out for me, who's going to kind of thing? That's the model that we have, Tammy. Yeah. The model is this is a rough world, and uh, we are encouraged, we are inculturated into a me-centered universe from a very young age. We're taught to be competitive, to be better than the other person, to go out and you know look out for number one, and uh, things like that. So it's it's kind of inbuilt into the culture. And by the way, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being a me-centered person. I'm simply pointing out that if you live all of your time in a me-centered universe, then you are going to find that you live a pretty miserable life. The easiest way to get out of that is to simply recognize how much of the time you are in that. And I have several specific exercises, all of which are designed to show that. For example, when you are in a conversation with a person, how often are you not listening to the person because what you're focusing on is the brilliant reply that you're going to make? So I have an exercise where people are in a conversation, but they're not allowed to use the words I, me, or my. And straight away, when that is a constraint, they find that they're not trying to think of what reply am I going to make, but they're actually listening to the other person and the tenor of the interaction changes dramatically. So lots of such exercises which, A, get persons to recognize that they're living in a me-centered universe, and B, take small baby steps to get out of that, and those small baby steps cumulatively make a tremendous difference. I was talking to a boss, for example, uh, he was the CEO of a major organization, and he was wondering why he was not very well liked and why people just didn't seem to do what he wanted them to do. And I pointed out to him that he was in the habit of viewing everybody. He thought that he was motivating people and being encouraging and you know trying to bring out the best in them, but he was really viewing everybody as a mechanism. In other words, I want to motivate you because if I motivate you, you're going to do something which is going to help me meet my numbers and that's going to make me look good. So I'm not relating to you as you, I'm relating to you as a mechanism by which something will happen which I want to have happen. That's a pretty nasty way to look at it. Mm -hmm. And I was able to get him to recognize that and he said, hey, that's good. So next time he interacted, he genuinely got to the point where a lot of the times he was interacting with people, not because they could do something which he wanted to have happen, 
but because they could do something which would make them shine and become better, feel better about themselves, and uh, you know, reach more of their full potential. And all of a sudden, the entire nature of his relationship with many of his team members changed and changed dramatically. And he felt it, and they felt it. Now, Sri Kumar, when we were talking about the person who maybe resents their work, doesn't like it very much, and you said, find the things that you're grateful for, and then ask, how can you amplify that? How can you have more of that? And in other examples, you talked about, if you hear a conversation about how terrible our workplace is, you can turn the conversation around and say things like, well, what could we do about it? What new initiatives could we put in place? And what what I found is that some people seem to be the kind of people who make that step, that step of asserting themselves, taking initiative, creating something new. And other people, you know, sort of look on the sidelines at what's happening and think, well, you know, it's not really my job to do that. What helps people take initiative to cross that gap to be the kind of person who says, you know, let's start something new here versus just sitting around complaining about it? That's an extremely good question. And I'm not sure that I have a real answer to that one. I do know that the best way to get people thinking along those lines is by actual having them actually experience it. Let me give you a situation which you know kind of touches on what you just raised. The first time that I taught the program at one of the top business schools, there was a particular program which was a flagship program with very experienced people who fell out. You know, this this is this is for the birds. It's woolly. It's uh, airy fairy and uh, it's not hard business so we're not going to take it but they were curious about it so there were about four or five members from that group who actually took the program so they were constantly being bombarded with what's it like what's actually happening and they of course gave it rave reviews and uh, the following semester many of the members of that group who had actually graduated came back to the business school purely to take that course because they saw the impact that it had on their colleagues and they said, I want to be a part of that. So when you're doing something like this, there are going to be a lot of naysayers. There are going to be people sitting on the sidelines. A goodly percentage of them, when they see the impact that it is having, will come back and say, I really want to do it myself. There are going to be some who, despite all of this, are going to be cynical and sitting on the sidelines and running it down And those are the people from whom you want to distance yourself. And from an organizational perspective, sooner or later, it would be better if uh, those persons were uh, no longer with the company. Mm -hmm. Because they're not really helping move the company forward in a positive way. It's worse than that. If they were no longer helping the company not move forward, that's something you can live with. They're actively dragging it backwards. Yeah. They are not only being miserable, they're trying to drag others to uh, give them company in misery. And I don't think that that is good either for them or the other people who are trying to step out. But I must tell you that when people actually see things like this happening, a very, very large number of them actually want to be a part of it. I'm working right now with a major company where they heard me speak and they actually wanted, many of them actually wanted to take my program, but they were kind of hesitant and, you know, it's a lot of work and I have to give up my weekends and, you know, I think I'm going to pass. 
But some of them did take it, and it so happened that one of them is also a very senior uh, HR executive, and she feels this has completely transformed my life, and I want to bring it into the company, and I want my team to take it, and we're now talking about how do we bring it into the company on a much, much broader scale than we have done so far. So when you see change happening, when you see how much it improves your life, many people want to be on that bandwagon. You just have to make it easy for them. You know, we talked, Sri Kumar, about this vision that you have of people coming to work on Monday morning and really being excited to come to work. And you use the word quivering with excitement. And, right. and you, you mentioned that this is like the hole-in-one. Yes. And at the same time, in your book, Happiness at Work, you talk about goal-setting as not being something that you're particularly excited about. So, so I'm a little confused. It's good to have a vision that's like a hole-in-one, but yet you're not excited about goal-setting. Can, <laughs> can you help me understand this? Certainly. Uh, uh, perhaps I should have made it a little bit clear. I am not against goal-setting. Uh, think about it this way. From a very young age, would you agree that we're indoctrinated in the idea that goals are good? You go to school and you have to get good grades because then you can get into a good college. And if you get into a good college, you're going to get a good job. And if you get a good job, you're going to make a decent salary. And everything is an instrument for something else. And if you do all of this, somehow, in some vague way, you'll be happy. So we're goal setting and reaching goals is kind of inbuilt into our culture, our system, in school, in work, every place. At work, for example, every manager has goals and every employee has to set goals or meet goals set by his or her manager. And these days you don't have goals, you have stretch goals. Now here is the point. Look back on your own life and you will recognize that actions are within your control pretty much, but the outcome is completely outside your control. Can you think of times in your life, Tammy, when you took a certain set of actions intending to reach a particular outcome and that didn't happen? Of course. All the time. Much of the time, we t actions are within our control. The outcome is not within our control. Much of the time, we take actions. Much of the time, we don't reach the outcome we wanted. And some of the time, what happens is we reach an outcome which is diametrically opposed to what we wanted. There was a, a wonderful case where a politician in India wanted to you know, kind of clean up the corruption that was in a particular government department. And since the legal system wasn't working very well, he thought that he would shame the people, and he publicly named the officials who were corrupt. And he thought this would you know, kind of straighten them out. But instead what happened is that all of the population said, ah, these are the officials whom, uh, who take bribes, so we no longer have to think about it. And uh, they started going uh, preferentially to those people, and their private in uh, income increased dramatically. So when stuff happens, and if you arrange your life so that you live for the outcome, if I get this, then I will be happy, and the outcome is something that's beyond your control, you're setting yourself up for being miserable a great part of the time. It is possible to live your life differently where you focus on the process. You invest in the process, not the outcome. And a wonderful example of that is a quote by John Wooden, who was the uh, first person to reach the Basketball Hall of Fame, both as a player and as a coach. And he led UCLA to an unprecedented number of victories and appearances in the final in the NCAA. And what he said was, every time I start working with a new team, I never talk about winning or outscoring opponents. I always talk about when it's over, 
and you look in the mirror, did you do the best that you were capable of? And if you did the best that you were capable of, the score doesn't matter. But if you did the best you were capable of, I suspect you will find the score to your liking. It works exactly the same way. So what I'm saying is I'm not against goals, but I am against goals from the point of view of I'm going to invest in the goals, and if I make it, then I'm happy, successful, and if I don't make it, then life is terrible. What I view it as goals are very important, and you do set it because they give you direction. But once you've done that, you stop investing in the goals, which is an outcome, and start investing in the process and put every fiber of your being into the process. And if you've done that and you reach your goal, life is wonderful. And if you've done that and you don't reach your goal, life is wonderful. And that is a learnable skill. In a sense, what you're saying is to decouple, to uncouple happiness from our ability to hit certain goals, that we can be happy in the process regardless of the outcome. Is, is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. And if you treat goals with, from that perspective, then goals are wonderful. How would you define happiness, Sri Kumar? Okay. Uh, once again, in our culture, we tend to speak of happiness in very trivial terms. We you know, got our favorite ice cream, so we're happy. We saw a good movie, so we're happy. Uh, things like that give you passing flashes of pleasure, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a very deep sense of well-being, the knowledge that you are fundamentally okay, that you have always been okay, that you will always be okay, that you cannot not be okay. As long as you're in the human predicament, stuff will happen, but even as you do what you must to deal with the stuff that comes your way, you're still fundamentally okay. That's what I'm talking about. I love that definition. Now, one of the exciting ideas that you introduce in your work, at least I found it really exciting, was the idea of extreme resilience, that it's possible to be extremely resilient in life and work. And, and I wonder if you can talk about that a bit. Sure. Uh, in fact, I advocate extreme resilience rather than positive thinking. So let me first make a distinction between that. What happens as we uh, go through life, Tammy, is stuff happens to us, and we have a habit of instantaneously passing a judgment, which is, this is a good thing or this is a bad thing. Uh, and most of the time, when the outcome is something that we did not want, it's an outcome that's adverse to our expectations, we immediately say this is a bad thing. Now, what happens is the moment you define something as a bad thing, the probability that you will experience it as such increases dramatically. But if you look back in your own life, can you think of times when something happened and you thought, gee, this is terrible, but with the wisdom of hindsight and you look back on that and say, hey, isn't that wonderful? You know, that led me to all kinds of uh, things that I wouldn't have experienced otherwise, and my life is actually better because that happened. Can you think of things like that in your life? I can. Virtually everybody can. In fact, I used to run an experiment where I physically tabulated it, and I would say that somewhere around 85, 90% of the persons in my program had no difficulty at all in coming up with multiple examples where this was true. 
they, for example, were rejected in a job interview and they felt terrible about it. And two weeks later, they got another job offer, which was far better, and they wouldn't have been able to accept it if it hadn't been for the earlier rejection. Stuff like that. So when you go through life and something happens to you, even something that you initially think is terrible, if you look at it from an enlightened perspective, you'll say, hey, maybe it's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing, I don't know, but since I don't know, I'm not going to stick the bad thing label on it. And if you don't stick the bad thing label on it, you don't get down, you simply look at it as uh, a part of the terrain. And then you don't need positive thinking. Positive thinking, by its very nature, uh, brings about a duality. You need positive thinking because something negative has happened to you and you somehow need to turn it around and uh, make some lemonade out of it. But if you do not stick a negative, a bad thing label on whatever happens to you, then you don't need positive thinking, you don't spend any time being down, and you simply go on and do what needs to be done. So imagine that you are a civil engineer and you're looking to build a road. Now, when you're looking to build a road through territory and you see a swamp there, a swamp isn't a bad thing. It's simply something that you have to take account of in your blueprints for the road. You can approach life that way. And when stuff happens, don't bother labeling it as a bad thing. Simply learn what lessons you can learn from that and then say, okay, where do we go from here? And that takes you out of going into a negative spiral. You no longer lament on the terrible things that happened and why did it happen to you and you're always prone to bad luck and all the rest of that baggage we tend to pick up. Do you believe that's universally true, Sri Kumar, that anything that happens, no matter what happens, that we don't need to label it as bad? I mean, as you're speaking, I'm thinking of lots of things that happen to me in business that I think are bad. You know, a big... Uh, store account goes bankrupt, owed us a certain amount of money, somebody sues me for no reason, uh, a big order is returned, uh, there's a cancellation. I mean, I, th- these things, I, I do think they're bad when they happen. That okay. is my response. Now, here's the thing. You can say that they're bad, and you can go into a downward spiral about it, or you can simply say it happened and uh, what, what is the lesson that I can learn from it? And having learned what uh, you can from it, you go on and don't waste any more emotional energy on that. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, Viktor Frankl, in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, related the tale of this really beautiful girl, uh, very wealthy, and she was in a concentration camp. And in one of their conversations, she related that she was really happy that this happened to her because she said that she was a spoiled brat and she now recognized that she was a spoiled brat and this experience brought her in touch with the spiritual side of her that she never knew existed. And she was genuinely grateful that she was in a concentration camp and a few weeks later she was taken out and gassed and you know, I never saw her again. But that is what started Viktor Frankl on his life work, which is when faced with extreme adversity, Why is it that some people simply flourish while others disintegrate? So the point is, you don't have much control over what life deals you, but you do have an enormous amount of control over how you choose to experience what life deals you. And I'm suggesting to you that if you have stuff like, uh, you know, bad accounts, uh, a very bad, very big account turning bad on you or somebody suing you frivolously, 
You can waste an enormous amount of energy in saying this is a bad thing and why did it have to happen to you? Or you can simply say, okay, this happened. What is it that I have to learn in terms of uh, procedures that I'm going to implement, steps that I'm going to take in the future, and then focus on what do you have to do right now rather than lamenting over what happened. Agreed, this is not what you would have chosen if you had the ability to choose, but since you don't have the ability to choose and it happened, you simply deal with it rather than lament over it. I love this thought, at least theoretically. I, I, I hope I can start applying it more. And that brings me to the question of how does this work for you in your own life? Are you able to have all kinds of things happen and not label them as bad things? Oh, absolutely. It works, you know, your book contract got canceled or this happened or that or this of speaking event. Oh, wonderful. In, in fact, let me give you a concrete example. Yeah. Uh, I was teaching at a very prominent business school, and there were some people who were upset about my course, and all of a sudden they managed to get it canceled. So in a particular semester when I was supposed to be teaching there, I received word literally at the last minute that, no, I'm not going to be teaching there. Now, if I had been my old self, I would have been really, really down about it and angry and contemplated legal action and you know, really gone through the entire uh, gamut of uh, negative emotions. This time, it literally took me, though I'd say somewhere between five and ten minutes, to say, ah, well, you know, stuff happens, and I moved on. Now, because I was not teaching at that business school in fall, I was given the opportunity to address a, uh, to be a keynote speaker at an organization called World Blue, which is an organization that sponsors uh, democracy in the, wor- in the workplace. My talk was extremely well received, and I, you know, basically made contact with a whole bunch of people, all of whom play a very prominent role in my life. One of them in particular liked what I had to say so much that he invited me to come and speak at his conference on happiness in Copenhagen, and I did. And that talk yesterday made it to the uh, main homepage of TED. Mm -hmm. So now I'm on TED.com. And none of this would have happened if I had been teaching at that business school at that time. That's a perfect illustration. So why go around saying, hey, this is bad? Because who knows? In your work, Sri Kumar, I know you talk to lots of very successful executives and business leaders. Do you think these people have, in general, mastered this technique of extreme resilience? By and large, no. That's one of the reasons why I'm very excited to be doing what I am, because these are intelligent people, and a certain percentage of them, when the concept is presented to them in the way in which I present it, are very eager to say, hey, this makes sense, and I want to do more about it, and how can I go about doing it? But by and large, if the question you're asking me is, have they mastered it? No way. They live uh, extremely stressful life. There's a lot of tension. They do things on uh, this, uh, on a whim and at the spur of the moment, and by and large are uh, many times quite miserable. Because mm-hmm. as you're talking and I'm, I'm listening to this skill, the skill of not labeling things as bad and how much energy that will free up to be constructive and to, to do what's needed, I'm thinking... All of these successful business people, they're already successful. If they did this, they would be... Even even more successful. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely, yes. That is correct. 
and that is where a my work is now heading. And successful in terms of results, but probably also successful in terms of the quality of their experience. Bingo! You put your finger right on it, Tammy. And let me add further: it's not just successful in terms of results, not just successful in terms of the kind of people they are, but also when you're operating from that space, the other persons they interact with with get a whole lot better too. Can I share a story with you? Please. Uh, I had someone who was a senior executive at a large firm, and one of the things he positively hated was delivering the results of 360-degree evaluations, and especially when they were negative, because this meant the other person would be let go. And somewhere during the time when he was taking my program, he said, I'm approaching this the wrong way. All I'm thinking about is, I hate doing this. Why do I have to do this? This is such a waste of time. Why is this a part of my work day? And it's, I'm, I'm being entirely me-centered. So why don't I get out of that and simply recognize that I'm a highly compensated individual and this is part of what I have to do, so that's the way life is. So let me accept it and start thinking instead in terms of what's the impact going to be on the other person. So the next time such a situation came around, he sat down and he meditated for a few minutes before the meeting. And then he met with a person, and he pretty much laid it on the line. He said, you know, here's your evaluation. This is what it shows. This is what's good about it. This is what I don't agree with, but there's nothing I can do about it, so let's not even talk about it. And uh, it's not good. And if I don't see this, this, and this happen within two months, you will probably be let go. And then he said, where are you? How are you feeling? Uh, what impact is this going to have on you? What impact is it going to have in your family? And what can I do to help you? And the subordinate burst off crying. He said, in all the years that I've uh, been in the workplace, nobody has ever been so sympathetic. Thank you so much. Can I meet with you every two weeks? So I soon said, sure. So they started meeting every two weeks, and five years later, he's no longer with the company, but uh, his former subordinate is there and going well. And as he spoke to me afterwards and he was reflecting, he said, you know, Professor Rao, there is nothing that I said that I would not normally have said anyway. But the space from which I said it was vastly different. That's what makes all the difference. See, what happened is when you're dealing with persons, most of the time what happens is we're dealing with persons on the basis of roles. He's my subordinate. He's my boss. He's my colleague. He's an important customer, so I better be nice to him. We deal with persons because of the roles that they are playing, and we, we conform to the, and we're playing a role ourselves. And I'm encouraging people, do not relate to other persons in terms of the roles that they're playing, relate to them as one human being to another. And when you relate to people at that fundamental level as one human being to another, they are no longer thinking, he's my boss, he's my subordinate, you're simply saying, here is that person, we're all stuck in a human predicament, what can I do to be of service? Mm -hmm. And when you're approaching it from that emotional space, it really changes the dynamics of the interaction. Mm -hmm. And there is no way to actually describe this so people understand, so I don't even try. I have an exercise which, which forces them to go out and actually do it. And when they have that experience, then they know what I'm talking about. Trust me, it's extremely powerful. 
Can you explain the exercise to me? Oh, sure. Uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of them, but let me give you one, which is uh, what they have to do in this exercise is whenever they run into another person, they simply have to beam appreciation and goodwill. Recognize this is a human being who's stuck in his or her predicament, and I silently wish that person every blessing under the sun. And they do it with casual encounters like the cab driver, the person you buy a newspaper from, your waitress, the checkout cashier. And you do it with important relationships like your colleague at work, members of your work team or whatever. Silently simply say, uh, I wish you every blessing under the sun and what can I do to be of service? That, that's the thought frame from which they enter it. And many have reported huge, dramatic changes in the nature of the interaction, the depth of the conversation, and the closeness of the bonds that are forged. I'm seeing it right now in one of the programs I'm conducting where someone told me that she had a, a problem with uh, uh, a subordinate, and all of a sudden, if they're not booze and buddies, but it's become a very functional relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, as you, as you talk about that and, and how we can treat each other, it makes me think that happiness at work, which is, of course, the title of your new book, and happiness in life are really not that different. That's exactly correct. And that that in and of itself is a novel idea for people. Yes. You put, put your bunny on, you put, it, put your finger right on it. I have an exercise which I call the ideal job exercise, and it's called the ideal job exercise because when I was teaching in business school, jobs are okay, but many of my persons in my program figured out, Professor Rao, you're really not talking about an ideal job, you're talking about an ideal life. They're right. That is what I'm talking about. Can you introduce us briefly to what the ideal job slash ideal life exercise is? Sure. Uh, what happens is I have persons sit down and talk in uh, and write out in graphic detail their vision of this is the ideal job. Most of the time when persons start off, and you know, I frequently get people saying, Professor Rao, the vision laid out is a wonderful vision, but my problem is I don't feel passionate about anything. Yeah. And then I say, okay, what's your ideal job? And they'll say, okay, here it is, and this is the city where I live in, and this is how much money I make, and this is the type of person my boss is, and this is the type of uh, people my colleagues are, and here's how much I travel, and a whole bunch of stuff like that, you know, 15, 20, 30 parameters. And they say that if I could have that, then I would be, you know, happy, ecstatic, whatever. And I point out to them that that's not true. First of all, the exact set of circumstances that they've laid out doesn't exist. And even if it did and they were plugged into it, it would probably take only a few weeks before they were just as unhappy and miserable there than they, as they presently are. Because passion doesn't exist in the job, it exists in you. And if you don't have a way of igniting it within yourself where you are, you're very unlikely to find it outside. So once they have that realization, most of them get that pretty fast. Okay, but hold on, I'm not sure I get that. I mean, what do you mean passion doesn't exist outside. In other words, when you say, I really want to feel passionate about my job, you're looking at it from the perspective of, here is the stuff about the job that needs to change before I can be passionate. And I'm saying, here is the stuff about you that needs to change. And once you start making the changes internally between your ears, you will find that the external stuff also starts changing automatically and with much less effort. 
because I'm approaching people differently. You're approaching everything differently. You're approaching your tasks differently. You're approaching the people differently. Therefore, they respond to you differently. And your experience of what you're doing is dramatically different. Okay. And in the ideal job exercise, it's an iterative exercise where they do it a number of times. What I point out is that your ideal job isn't something that you find. It is something that you create. And you do it in bits and pieces and start putting it together. It's a little bit like a giant jigsaw puzzle. And assembling it is not a matter of days or weeks. It's a matter of years and decades. But once you start becoming clear of this is what I would like to do, this is the contribution I would like to make, and you start bringing those pieces into play, it's not that you discover your ideal job. It's one day you wake up and find that you are in your ideal job. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that also applies to the life that we have, the whole of our life. Absolutely, yes. It sounds like you think the kinds of techniques that we apply to work and life are really the same. Very, 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 very much the, much the same. And in fact, also, I would like to point out that in my book, You do not have a work life and a home life. I've had lots of people talk to me along lines of, well, you know, uh, my home life is a mess. My wife is suing for divorce. My kids don't want to hang out with me. Even my dog barks when I get home at night. And even my mistress is having an affair, but I'm doing great at work. It doesn't work that way, Tammy. You have one life. You don't have a work life and a home life. You have one life, and either it's working or it's not. That doesn't mean to say that you don't have challenges and some of them more extreme maybe in one or other area of your life, but you don't have a work life and a home life, you have one life. And either it's working or it's not. Very good. Makes sense to me. One final question, Sri Kumar. Our program's called Insights at the Edge. Right. And you've talked about being grateful, not taking things as bad news, not living in a, in a me-centered universe. And I'm curious, what's the edge for you in terms of applying these principles in your life? What, where are you still growing in applying your own realizations in your own life? Oh, well, let me share a couple of things with you, Tammy. Uh, Twenty years ago, I was pretty miserable doing what I was doing. I was surrounded by people I didn't want to have anything to do with. I was deeply disgruntled in feeling, you know, well, I have a PhD from Columbia, I have these wonderful credentials, and I'm stuck in an area where nobody recognizes it, and I'm far behind what my peers are doing. I I was feeling pretty sorry and miserable for myself. And now I can get up and I can sincerely state that the difference between work and not work for me has completely vanished. I did a physical count a few months ago, and found that well over 90% of the people who have an ongoing presence in my life are people I want to have in my life, as opposed to why is this turkey in my life. And I get up and look at what I do, and I can tell you I am never going to retire. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to continue doing it as long as I'm physically capable of doing it and then more. There is going to be a time when I can no longer jump on an airplane and go 10 time zones away, But there are wonderful people who have told me, Professor Rao, there is such a thing as uh, the Web 2.0, and there's all kinds of things that we can do with uh, technology, and let us help you to see 
how we can modularize what you do and put it out to a much broader audience. And, you know, I'm happily working with them. Beautiful things are happening almost on a daily basis. So when I look upon my life now as uh, compared to what it was like 20 years ago, uh, there's just no comparison. And I can see that this is happening in a better way. More people are coming into my life who have more talents uh, that they want to use to leverage what I can do. Uh, It's just a beautiful marriage in many ways. Does that answer your question? It it does. So uh, using your language, you, you feel successful. I no longer think in terms of success. I simply think in terms of, am I doing what it is that I was put on earth to do? And the answer is, more and more so each day. Wonderful. I've been talking with Dr. Shrikumar Rao here on Insights at the Edge. He's the author of a new book, Happiness at Work, Be Resilient, Motivated, and Successful, No Matter What, and also a Sounds True audio learning series on personal mastery, discovering passion and purpose in your life and work. Thank you, Shrikumar, for being with us. My pleasure, Tammy. I have admired Sounds True for a long time. I love your programs. I know many of the uh, authors and creators of your program, and I think you're, you're doing something wonderful in the world, and I wish you every power. Thank you so much. Thanks for being with us. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey.